1: Um, The barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church.
2: What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally
1: contradictory and there are antagonisms there? You're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects.
2: Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a Catholic Ph.D. student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto.
0: And I'm Matt Bernico. I'm the assistant professor for media studies and communication at Greenville University.
2: Uh, This week on the show, we are talking with Travis Macon, who wrote a great book called Our God Loves Justice on a guy named Helmut Gollwitzer, a German socialist Christian that you'll learn a lot more about later. But to kind of ease us into the conversation, we thought we would talk about um, just another brilliant, uh, brilliant take on Christianity and socialism offered to us at the Gospel Coalition uh, so this is an article called Colin Kaepernick's Shirt, The Gospel in a World Haunted by Communism. Uh, Matt, yeah, uh, <laughs> maybe you should uh, just lead us in here. What what are we looking at in this uh, great piece of literature?
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, something that Travis mentions early on in the conversation is that Gulwitzer was important to him because it was just someone that demonstrated that there's other types of Christianity possible. Um, So let's just do a stark contrast here with the types of uh, really bad Christianity that are possible, um, (laughs) highlighted in the Gospel Coalition article here. Uh, Okay, so the article starts off with some stuff about Colin Kaepernick and like a shirt he wore. Um, The shirt had Fidel Castro on it, and that was like... um, Not great for some people, I guess, who are watching him. I mean, personally, I think it's awesome. It's a great shirt. Um, (laughs) I'd buy it. But anyways, that's a segue into how the article starts talking about communism. So it's not really about Kaepernick at all. It's actually about um, Greg Forster, the author of the article's uh, extremely bad take about Christianity and communism. Uh, The article is really kind of strange uh, because (laughs) uh, on the one hand, it starts off just kind of going through like um, sort of how the temptation for uh uh, for choosing sort of communism over capitalism is great uh and that the the world is sort of so so riddled with um the depravity that is uh common for christians to talk about um and uh, communism seems like a way to kind of get out of that depravity but actually it's not um (laughs) surprise surprise greg forster uh that's his position uh, so he kind of goes through and starts talking about why communism is actually bad. Um, he doesn't ever really say anything sort of philosophically interesting about communism or even practically damning about communism. Uh, he does. He never say, even
2: says what communism is.
0: Yeah, se. that's true. Um, he does not. Well, uh, the only thing, the kind of most concrete fact that he ever says about communism is that it killed 100 million people. And, uh, there's actually no citation for that one. So I can't really judge the veracity of that claim. I would imagine that's one of those like overblown numbers that people get from like, uh, Nazis in world war two or something like that. Um, I mean, who knows? Yeah. For real. Who does know? Um, those ki those types of like numbers about how many people communism killed are usually, uh, dubious at best. um, But uh, yeah, I don't know. So he goes on talking about liberation theology and um, how skeptical he is of that. Um, But uh, things get really pretty weird (laughs) because he uh, to kind of argue against communism instead of just kind of like making like an actual theological claim or a philosophical argument or any type of critique. He just uh, says, well, the Bible says... Property is good. So that's why communism is bad. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, we can talk more about it in a second, Dean, but what did you think about the article?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic article, um, just t- really tightly argued. <laughs> my, my favorite part is that um, the article opens talking about how Colin Kaepernick wore the shirt, and then he says that uh, <laughs> uh, Kaepernick sabotaged a national dialogue about police brutality by wearing it, uh, which I think is pretty funny um, can, yeah it's very funny um like i'm sorry people are not refusing to listen to colin kaepernick because he wore a shirt with fidel castro they're refusing to listen to colin kaepernick because they're white supremacists yeah exactly <laughs> like i bet like the majority of people who watched him give that speech didn't even know who was on his t-shirt <laughs> uh there's no way um fidel castro doesn't have the same kind of recognition uh, <laughs> It's just, man, uh, but, if he only had
0: wor- worn a uh, just sensible t-shirt, <laughs> this situation would if be so he had different.
2: only a, a Ludwig von Mises t-shirt, um, maybe <laughs> things would be different. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it is out of control. Um, but I think uh, my favorite part, um, or maybe like one kind of point of, of hope in this article, is that he just keeps, uh, keep, keeps worrying about how communism is a specter haunting the church. And uh, it's so great because, um, as Jody Dean argues in a few places, when conservatives are scared of Marxists, that means that, like, maybe Marxists actually matter. (laughs) And uh, it's kind of ironically encouraging, right, that someone would take so much time to write about the specter of communism uh, in the church because it means that, who knows, maybe it's actually pretty spooky.
0: Uh, Well, uh, like we said, he doesn't say a lot about what communism is, but he does say a lot about what communism isn't. So here we go. (laughs) A, A quote from the article. Communism isn't a political and economic theory that happens to be associated with atheism. It is atheism. Atheism is applied to political and economic systems. Like fascism, communism is an eschatological theodicy built on and therefore an idolatrous worship of political movements. Communism is essentially fascism for rationalists. Oh my gosh. <laughs> there's, there's a lot going on here, obviously. Um, I I guess it's really frustrating that that's the way he, uh, characterizes what communism is economic or atheism applied to economic theories when, I mean, really it's just the basis of all like social science, um, <laughs> that like that the, you know, the sort of fundamental parts of history are like how people eat. Um, that's not something that's all that crazy. I don't know, Dean, what do you think?
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, there's a lot going on there. One thing that we talked with Travis about is that uh, Galvazir famously you know, is really intent on saying that Marxism is not a kind of atheistic package that you have to accept um, wholesale. It's a, a mode of analysis, uh, a set of tools that you have to sort of deploy when it is useful. Um, and I feel like this is just... <laughs> This is the kind of thing that anybody who has ever been through, like, the public education system could ever just tell you about communism. Like, it's exactly the kind of thing that you can only say if you never read anything (laughs) about communism on its own terms. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It's it's just a wild, uh, very lazy, sloppy, silly claim.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, It even gets funnier and sillier as uh, the article goes on. So towards the end, there's a section that's called Church on Notice. Um, which I think is like sort of a call to action, I think, or that's how he sees it as like a call to action, I think, for other churches to, uh, rethink sort of the, the hauntings of communism. So, uh, the author of the article, uh, goes on to state that, well, communism is also bad because the, um, the Bible affirms property rights and, uh, <laughs> which is really weird because he said that and I was like, well, that seems suspicious to me because I pay attention to those kinds of things in the Bible. <laughs> and uh, the one Bible verse he uses to um, he uses to overcome the sort of specter of communism in the Bible is Acts five four, which is like which is hard extra hard for me to believe because Acts is like the one good communist book of the Bible. I mean, there's a bunch of other ones too, but that's like the <laughs> one where communism actually happens um, <laughs> in in the Bible. So I was incredulous. And uh, Dean, are you familiar with Acts five four?
2: I am familiar with it.
0: Dude, it's great. It's actually uh, the most pro-communist verse of the entire book.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, so for those that don't know or, or didn't remember, um, this is the Ananias and Sapphira bit. So they, um, there's a lot going on in this passage, but the, I guess the kind of moral of the story is they only half-heartedly sell their property and give it over to the church. They don't uh, give it all over. And they say that they do, and then they get chastised by Peter, and then famously are struck dead by God <laughs> for not, um, well, people have different reasons, I guess, of, of why they were killed. But in any case, there's a very strong lesson about expropriation of private property for the sake of the common good here. Uh, definitely not a verse you would want to go to to protect property rights in the Bible.
0: Yeah, that's right. It's such a funny a funny thing, or a funny way to like take one verse and make it into something that's pro-property rights, even though it's actually the opposite. Uh they withhold some of the they withheld some of the property from the church and like then they lied about it. And that's <laughs> seems like a pretty communist story to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding.
2: Um it's pretty pretty crazy. Uh as he kind of goes on, he does deal with the famous sort of acts passages about being a communist and his essential uh move i guess hermeneutic moves to be like well that's a eschatological dream and it's a voluntary association it's certainly not real life communism which i mean there's a lot to be said about that uh not least about how people like to ignore parts of the bible that they think are really hard which is ironically what conservatives are always complaining about yeah <laughs> um but at the uh, at the end he says um justice requires more than the protection of the laws that structure market relations it requires a community where people treat each other rightly within market relations that community ought to be the church, which can model justice in a way that can influence prevailing cultural norms. Uh, nothing seems more defeatist to me than relying on the church to teach capitalism to be nice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that seems uh, pretty silly. Uh, definitely something you're gonna be waiting a while for. I mean, speaking of like eschatological dreams, hello, this one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, so there's a lot more to be said about this article, even though the article doesn't itself say very much, uh, but it does demonstrate a lot of kind of common, I guess, misunderstandings about communism and just really, really glaringly obvious, um, bad readings, uh, of communist theorists of the history of Christianity and communism. Uh, but I think it's a really good setup for what Travis is going to talk to us about in a minute about Golvitzer and, um, a kind of more nuanced take on Christianity and, and socialism.
0: All right, well, let's go to Travis.
2: Great. So this week we're chatting with Travis McMakin, who wrote a great book called Our God Loves Justice. Um, surprise. That's a good good thing to just come out and say. Uh, Travis, before we jump into that and hear a little bit more about your research on Helmut Goldwitzer, um, could you just tell us a little bit about what you've been up to lately?
1: Doing way too much paperwork. My institution in its infinite wisdom decided that I had the makings of an administrator. And so uh, for the current <laughs> academic year, <laughs> I have been swamped with those kinds of tasks. Doing less teaching and Kicks. trying desperately to find time to read and maybe write a little bit. But, but it's been uh, been rough in terms of transition and workload this year. So I don't have much exciting to say on that score, sadly. <laughs> but trying to promote my book a lot. Yes, I know you guys you know up. on Twitter it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, constantly getting tweeted about. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> by me, I don't want to give to the wrong impression think that other people are tweeting about it. It's all by me. <laughs> <but>. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, there's a great uh, theology corner event coming up. Uh, I guess we should just maybe we can just plug that at the top here. Um, Matt and I are both contributing to it, but there's awesome. a good discussion. I hope what will be a good discussion of uh, Travis's book there. So. For folks who are interested, um, that's a cool thing.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to see what comes out of that.
2: Yeah, I bet. It must be weird as an author to like invite a bunch of people to think about what you've written. <laughs> um, good for you. That sounds really vulnerable.
1: On the one hand, as an author, you want people to read your stuff. On the other hand, as an author, well, at least me, I don't want people to read it. Just like, just let it be. I'll move on, do the next thing. That's kind of done now. Yeah. And that's just kind of a relationship that I've had to all of my books. Once I've written it, um, to a to a certain extent, that's out of my system now, and I'm ready to move on to the next thing. So yeah. I've been trying to be a lot more intentional with this particular book, this Goldwitzer book, to... Uh, to sit with it and try to find different ways of engaging people and making sure that it, that it reaches people um, and, and cuts through a lot of the the noise and the other publications and things. But, but just per mm. at, at a personal level, once I've written it, I'm kind of moved on. So it's, it's an interesting <laughs> dynamic. Yeah, I bet
2: that makes sense. Uh, it also makes sense why you'd want to push this one, because as we'll talk about in a minute here, there's a lot of good contemporary reasons to kind of keep reading it instead of just leave it on the shelf. Um, Matt, what have you been up to?
0: uh it's advising time some advising students and
2: uh (laughs) that's the most like your version of that sentence i think i've ever heard
0: yeah so it's been um it's advising is so difficult i can't i can barely make my own schedule let alone like the schedule for 30 students um uh but also uh one of my classes read borges today and that was really fun had a good conversation so it's not all bad (laughs) (laughs) that sounds good yeah what about you dean
2: um not too much except uh the school that i go to ics uh we are looking at courses for the fall and winter and i'm on the committee um to look at them oh one cool thing about ics is that uh students here are invited to be involved at like every level of institutional governance so uh this year my my job is to review syllabi and um propose program changes and all that kind of stuff which is awesome it's cool that you, as a student you have like a significant say in your own education Um, but it means i've been in a ton of meetings that are simultaneously like keeping me a little too busy but also exciting to kind of figure out what profs are are looking forward to teaching there's a there it looks like there's going to be a class on in the fall and also a class on black panther and african liberation which is just like so crazy to me to think about so i'm pretty pumped about
1: all that
0: yeah sounds like great stuff does sound neat and And,
1: uh, and it's kind of it's it's fun to see through your eyes how these um these tasks and this kind of committee work can appear to be interesting and uh, exciting because, <laughs> from where I am in the in the whole process, it's uh it's it's lost a bit of its luster. Let's just say that.
2: Yeah, I believe it. Um, it is taxing for sure. Uh, I think a place like ICS. This is. I mean, I'm always happy to plug this institution because it's been so good to me. But uh, what I love so much about it is that. Um, basically the idea is these meetings are super important and they like really drive that home that like, yeah, they're a lot of work and kind of tedious, but it's, it's a good thing that we kind of have the ability to shape our own, um, you know, lives basically together. It's a very small school. So, uh, yeah, despite all the tedious nature of, uh, some of the meetings, it's also like, sometimes I'm just like, well, I'm pretty privileged to be able to actually care about it as a student, instead of just like waiting for someone to tell me what classes I can take. <laughs> um, well. Let's uh, jump right into it. Um, Travis, so we oftentimes when we have someone uh, talk about a piece of writing, we ask them to give an elevator pitch for that writing to get everyone on the same page. Uh, So we're going to ask you to do that now. What would be your elevator pitch for Our God Loves Justice?
1: So you know how there's lots of conservative and evangelical Christians running around talking about how religion and politics should go together in a certain way? There are other options. (laughs) and and Goldfitzer gives you one of them so that's my elevator pitch uh, for for this book it really comes out of a place and and I have a North American evangelical background that's kind of the the brand of Christianity that I grew up in and out of so to speak Um, but this book is really about uh, trying to find an example of somebody who engages both with the Protestant theological tradition at a deep and dogmatic sort of level, while also engaging in a different kind of politics and a kind of politics that you don't often see articulated in theological terms in uh, North America. So that's my elevator pitch for the book. It's a, it's um, an example of of a different option uh, that most of us haven't considered all that much.
0: Yeah sounds like a good uh that's a good elevator pitch that there is another option um i like that well Me too. Uh, <laughs> what drew you to Golbitzer, uh it's ex- like explicitly what about him was really like your jam <laughs> uh,
1: it 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 happened in what was that the spring of 2011 so i was never very politically engaged growing up. I grew up in kind of a Reagan Republican household. Uh, what I would, what at this point has become something like a moderate or, or center Republican sort of position. Um, but still on that side. And as I went to college and then went to seminary, I started... Just, this is how I wrote it on my Facebook page. And if we look, it might still be there. But it says when it asks you political views, I wrote, I'm a moderate, but I'm probably left of you. <laughs> and, and so all through that period, I was starting to uh, think a little more critically, but not not spending very much time at it, because all of my time was set I was taken up with courses and the in the theological tradition and exegesis and all of this kind of stuff. And um, that started to change with the uh, financial crisis in the first decade of the 20th century, the whole Great Recession thing that began at the end of 2007 and uh, they they talk about the ending of it I believe at the end of 2010, beginning of 2011 and that period basically coincided with my time in the PhD program so that um, by the time I was coming out of my program and looking for jobs and things, it was just about the same time that all the data on the quote-unquote recovery from that economic event started coming out. And we began seeing that all of the, um, the growth in the economy that was happening as we recovered from this, all the profits from that, all the wealth that was being generated was going to the top few percent of U.S. society and that the rest of uh, the United States society was not benefiting in any way from that quote-unquote recovery. And that really got me asking questions about economics for the first time and trying to find my way to a theological approach that could uh, interact with economic sorts of concerns. And so uh, my doctoral supervisor was George Hunsinger, and in the spring of 2011, I was uh, helping him teach a class on BART to the MDiv students at Princeton Seminary, and and he and I were talking about some of this, and he pointed me to Golvitzer, and of course he knew Golvitzer from the volume on Karl BART and Radical Politics that he translated and edited decades ago, uh, just reissued in a second edition. I highly recommend that folks go out and get that. Lots of great stuff in there. But he pointed me to Golvitzer, and I went looking and started to poke around, and I found in Golvitzer somebody who... Um, could be a guide for me in thinking through the intersection of theological and political, and especially social and economic issues. And so I started reading more and more, and talking about Golwitzer, and writing about him a little bit here and there as I started teaching here in Missouri. And then my editor, uh, Mike Gibson at Fortress, sent me an email or a message one day and said, "Hey, you've been doing a lot with Golwitzer. That's really cool. Why don't you write a book about him?" And I said, "Sure." And then I spent the next six years or so basically reading german (laughs) working my way through as much of uh of his work as i could and uh really trying to wrap my mind around him and i just found uh so many uh insights there that i had never encountered before um that uh, he really became an important teacher for me and uh that's that's really what drew me to him this this biologic or uh, biographical convergence between uh, my own uh, career location and the uh, timing of the Great Recession and, and of course, uh, having somebody suggest Goldwitzer to me. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, could you give us like a quick maybe biographical
0: sketch of Goldwitzer so we can know how to contextualize him? Uh, because he is not like... He's not Karl Barth, right? Like, he's a little bit of a, <laughs> a, a maybe a, a minor figure in sort of the history of theology. So could you contextualize who he is and what he's about for us?
1: Yeah, he, he looks like a minor figure at this point. Um, there's a couple reasons for that. Um, <laughs> I, I get myself in trouble with uh, my fellow <laughs> theologians for some of this stuff, but uh, Moltmann lived longer and uh, got people a lot more excited with his eschatology um, but politically, Golwitzer was left of Motman. And um, uh, Jungel was more dogmatically creative, but of course very politically conservative and had a big argument with Golwitzer uh, at one point. And that argument and Golwitzer's criticism uh, Jungel's criticism of Golwitzer has really dominated, the reception of Golwitzer in uh, English language theology up to this point. And people just kind of have the impression, if they know of Golwitzer at all, they know of him as the guy that Jungel wrote a few really scathing footnotes about. And um, <laughs> they don't really think it's worth their while to look any more closely, uh, which is really a shame. Um, and of course, uh, he's one of Barth's students, and he didn't write a multi-volume, you know, 13-part volume, dense uh, dogmatics for people to mine for their theological insight. Really, Golvitzer was much more about taking the broad contours of Barth's dogmatics... And uh, putting them to work, deploying them. I use the word deploy a lot for his use of the dogmatics because he's all about putting them into practice in a concrete socio-political sort of way. So he's not interested in theological innovation. He wants to put Bart's theology to work. And so, because he's not being theologically innovative, people kind of gloss over him. But he's being innovative in other ways. And of course, uh, English language Bart reception has been dominated by Tom Torrance, and Tom Torrance was of a rather politically and theologically conservative frame of mind. Not entirely. He he does some really interesting things, and I spend a lot of time with his work, uh, but he also Contributed to the downplaying of Bart's politics in English language reception, and if you're downplaying Bart's politics, you're not even thinking about Golwitzer, because Golwitzer was to the left of Bart. So um, all of those kinds of those the figures and their intersection with Golwitzer kind of conspire to keep him in the shadows. When really, in the second half of the uh, 20th century, and especially from about 1950 to 1980. Golwitzer was front and center in political theology in Germany, um, and you really could not avoid him, uh, but he passed from the scene very quickly, and, and I believe it's Friedrich Wilhelm Marquardt uh, makes a comment that uh, basically the problem was that Golwitzer's theology was tied too closely to the news cycle, and the news cycle moves on so quickly these days, and I think there's a lot of truth to that, but that's exactly why Golwitzer appeals to me, because he's not out there trying to do some kind of timeless theology. He's really trying to speak very directly to a concrete sociopolitical situation. Now, that was a huge tangent from the question you actually asked me, which was <laughs> about his biography. And his biography is really interesting as well, and I think it's a much better story even than Bart's biography. Uh, he's born into a conservative uh, Lutheran pastor's family in Bavaria, He's very much in the Weimar uh, Republic, uh, conservative, nationalist, wishing they still had a king kind of context. And uh, by the time you get to the 20s, he's involved in all kinds of nationalist and even national socialists like Nazi uh, youth organizations. Um, have you guys heard of the Beer Hall Putsch? I'm sure you have. Uh, where Hitler attempts a coup uh, in like 28, 27, something like that. Um, Goldwitzer was active and associated with the SA at that time in that area. So, um, he comes from this very conservative nationalist, even social, and, uh, even with connections to the Nazis early on. And then he kind of gets pulled out of that really through personal experience and friendships. He goes to gymnasium at St. Anne's in Augsburg. And uh, has a Jewish teacher that he really connects with It has fellow students who teach him. The way he puts it is um, that not all socialists are November criminals and not are, all Jews are necessarily damned, right? Uh, so that kind of personal interaction was really important for him. And he, and he grew out of that context as he went on to university and got tied in with dialectical theology and eventually Bart. so that by the time uh, Hitler becomes chancellor, Bart's calling him on the telephone in the middle of the night, waking him up to tell him that, and they're having conversations about it, and he's, he's attending uh, socialist meetings. There's one story I tell in the book where Bart sees him uh, one morning, and the previous night he had been at a, at a socialist meeting, and uh, Bart says to him, Herr Golwitzer, I heard that last night you were singing the Internationale. You've come a long way. <laughs> making a joke about just just how much his his views have shifted and so he's he's in that camp he's part of the confessing church as that goes down in the 30s he's close to the action with Barth and Niemöller he takes over for Niemöller at Niemöller's church in Dahlem outside of Berlin a suburb of Berlin when Niemöller is thrown into the concentration camp as a personal uh, guest if you will of the Fuhrer he gets conscripted into the Wehrmacht and of course at that time there was no conscientious objection. Either you showed up for your conscription or they put your back against the wall and a bullet in your head, and he wasn't prepared for that. So he uh, joined. He was first a, um, in a machine gun company, but transferred as quickly as he could to an ambulance corps and said that he never had to fire his weapon in combat in the war, which is something of an achievement. He's uh, captured when the Eastern Front collapses. He spends five years as a prisoner of war in Russia comes back on Christmas Day, uh, no, New Year's Eve, 1949, and uh, gets deeply involved in Western uh, German politics, where he stays a fixture for the next 30 years. So uh, he's involved in the student protests in Berlin in the 60s, uh, all of the debates surrounding nuclear armament of Germany in the 50s. He's deeply involved in the church and Marxist dialogue in the 50s and 60s. He starts up almost single-handedly. He's a major player in the uh, earliest Christian-Jewish dialogue in the 50s in Germany. Um, So just uh, a complete mover and shaker through all those decades and really interested in putting his theological convictions into concrete social praxis
2: uh that's really fascinating um it's always a challenge to kind of condense a whole person's life into just a few minutes so I think you've done a good job um well as you were as you were talking about it it kind of reminded me reminded me um I'm not a theology student so I could be completely wrong but uh I have this vague memory of some Karl Barth quote about how like you should have a bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other or something like that and uh it seems like that's kind of what Galwitzer is doing um, in the introduction to your book, you say that American Christians are living in what you call a kairotic moment—this moment of of decision and crisis. Um, how do you see Galwitzer kind of speaking into that moment, like holding our you know today's newspapers? Um, how do you
1: kind of see these two things related? That's that's a really I I really like that opening of the book. <laughs> if I can talk about how much I like my own stuff, but <laughs> there used to be another big, long paragraph, and then a little bit more on the chirotic moment in Tillich, uh, which is where I was drawing it from. And Mike Gibson, my editor, argued with me and argued with me and argued with me and finally convinced me to take it out because it wasn't really helping the reader at that point, even though I thought it was some of the most interesting stuff and I really enjoyed writing it. So uh, I like your question about the chirotic moment. The thing to keep in (laughs) mind, um, except for the real... Bulk of the biography chapter, which I wrote over the summer of 2015, virtually the rest of the book was written from, let's say, the beginning of February 2016 to the beginning of February 2017. And of course, in the United States, that's an election year. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's really what's in the background as I'm thinking about the chirotic moment, a moment that appears so pregnant with possibility, and both possibility for improvement and possibility for disaster. And the question that Tillich raises in talking about the Kairotic moment is, will people recognize it and push it in the right direction? Because it can go either way. And that's that's really what I feel like um, our situation is in North America and has remained uh, over the last you know year and a half since I wrote that year and a couple months since I finished writing. Um, we're in this kairotic moment where things kind of kind of uh, stand on the edge of a knife. I'm, I'm thinking of the quote from The Fellowship of the Ring in Tolkien where Galadriel says, the quest now stands on the edge of a knife, and if you falter just a little bit one way or the other, it will fail. Um, we're, we're in that kind of a moment, and the question is, is uh, North American Christianity going to push the kairotic moment in one direction or the other. And so by offering up Golwitzer at precisely this moment, I'm trying to do my part to push it in the direction that I would prefer that it go. And that's, uh, in the direction of maintaining a kind of, uh, deep and fruitful and, um, nur- uh, nurturing contact with the Protestant theological tradition while also, uh, engaging in progressive political praxis. So, um, that's one thing I feel like is missing in the North American context. You have people who are in contact with the Protestant theological tradition, but they tend to be politically conservative. And you have people who, even church folks who are politically progressive, but they tend not to be in very much contact with the theological tradition. And I think Golwitzer helps us straddle that divide in some very helpful ways.
0: Cool. Well, speaking of progressive political praxis, uh, this is a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. Um and I think uh what appealed to Dean and I most about Gulvitzer and what you've written about him is that he is unabashedly a socialist. Mm-hmm. Um and that's what we
1: like on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so I thought you guys I thought you guys were anar- were anarcho communists. Uh nope. <clears throat> we're we're friends with them. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> we'll hang. <laughs> Fair enough.
0: Yeah uh but so uh that being the case, could you tell us a little bit about goldvezer's socialism um uh, He kind of seems to be more of like the democratic socialist type, but also he's um got some interest in real revolutionary moments um so uh just maybe tell us a little bit about what what that socialism looks like for him
1: yeah, and I think um it'd be good if we talked a little bit about the revolution question further um definitely. He's a democratic socialist. He understands the sort of socialism that he would propose, this kind of theologically uh, motivated socialism, as the fulfillment of um, some of those key bourgeois liberal values from the Enlightenment. Um, He will quote from the slogans of the French Revolution, uh, which I am blanking on now, Um, fraternity, equality, equality. What's the other one?
0: Liberty. Liberty. Uh, that's it. Yeah, liberty. So
1: he'll, he'll allude to these these values with some regularity, and, and really the point that he wants to make is you don't have any of those things under capitalism. You don't have uh, equality, you don't have liberty, and you don't have solidarity or fraternity. Um, and really, if you want to enjoy the fruits of that kind of um, enlightenment moment, you need to carry it to its fulfillment in a form of democratic socialism. Uh, in terms of the kind of concrete day-to-day in-and-out details of what his socialism looked like—it's—I found it really hard to flesh that out. And part of the problem is we don't yet have a real critical biography of Um I've got an acquaintance from Germany who wants to write one. His name's Benedict Brunner. So uh, watch for that. I'm—I'm I'm constantly poking him and saying, "Hurry up and write this, so we can read it." Um, and I think that once we have that gap in the literature filled, we'll know a lot more. Um, but we do know a bit about his, or at least I know a bit about his engagement with the students and the student um, revolution, so to speak, of the late 1960s from like about 66 to 68 in Berlin. There was a period of unrest. Golwitzer was friends with the student leaders. He had He hosted them in his home. Uh, he spoke with them, he defended them in the press um, against attacks he He reasoned with them uh, about the tactical um, advisability of certain approaches i mean he was He was very much engaged there so and he he adjusted his own teaching dramatically instead of following the usual uh lecture pattern that you would have the lecture pedagogy that you would have in. Germany. He really he turned all of his classes into seminars, where he treated his students as you know uh, junior learners in the company of a senior learner, uh, and so that they were all learning together as a community. So he tried to put um, those sorts of values into practice in his own professional life, and to use his position at the university to support those students and their their calls for justice. He he attended um, many anti-war rallies. Um, he was very supportive of the Greens as they developed, uh, even when they were um, very disparaged in the media for what were seen to be kind of terrorist leanings, so to speak. Uh, I've seen multiple pictures of him being carried out of rallies and protests by police. <laughs> uh, be, like just he—he he was this little guy. He was—I—I've pro- never gotten a, f- a final fix on his height, but if I had to guess, he's probably about five six. Uh, Not a big guy, but just this little ball of energy. And it's just so funny to see a picture of him basically sitting with two policemen, one on either side, forming a chair with their arms and just carrying him out of a place uh, uh, at one of these rallies. So he really did put boots on the ground, so to speak, uh, for this kind of socialist praxis and and standing up for what he thought uh, should be happening politically. Now, in terms of what it would be like to be a democratic socialist in post-war Germany... um, Post-war res- Western Germany, the Bonn Republic, uh, became very reactionary very quickly. And um, Golwitzer and people like Goldwitzer initially hoped that after the war, there would be an opportunity to rebuild society on a better footing, a more just and equal footing, uh, to correct some of the mistakes uh, from uh, pre-war society. And uh, Golwitzer was initially optimistic about this, but very quickly he Uh, lost that optimism and began speaking about it as a reactionary republic. And if you read some of the other socialist literature, the international socialist literature from that period, you find them talking about the Bonn Republic as a reactionary democracy as well. Um, So he's part of that uh, kind of nervousness about what's happening there in West Germany, especially as you move into the 60s and 70s. And of course, much of that comes from West Germany's close association with the United States. Um, for more, I, I just went and dug out some sources uh, in case people were interested in democratic socialism in Germany at this period. There's a book in English by um, James Bentley. It's called Between Marx and Christ, and it deals with uh, church and Marxist engagement in Germany and Eastern Europe in general from about 1870 to 1970. And then a couple of German sources, one's by Trutz Rendorf. Uh, he edited it. It's called uh, Pranantisch Revolution. Uh, question mark, and that's uh, focused on uh, Protestantism and socialism in the DDR, East Germany. And then there's another book uh, edited by Siegfried uh, Hermel and some other folks called Umbrücke, and that's about um, German German Protestantism, West German Protestantism, and the social movements in the 1960s and 70s. So uh, any of your listeners who want to dig in more into what uh, socialism looked like in Germany and in the church at that time, those are some good places to look.
2: Yeah, that's great. Um, we, uh, Matt and I have been researching Galwater a little bit just for the responses that we're doing. And, um, we were just chatting the other day about all these pictures I found of him, uh, speaking at a Sandinista solidarity rally in <laughs> Germany, which is very cool. So, um, yeah, I dig that a lot. And uh, that's... maybe we could talk a little bit, Uh, kind of like about how Golfitzer's socialism is informed by, uh, a, an international solidarity against imperialism, uh, informed by black theology in the U S. Like he's really kind of trying to understand other liberation movements within his own kind of socialist, uh, framework.
1: Yeah. And in fact, he has writings on, um, things going on in a number of different central and Latin American countries. Uh, during those decades. Sadly, I have not been able to give them close attention um, at all. I, I had to stay focused on um, the North American context very much, or else the, the amount of material is just overwhelming. So somebody, uh, and one of you two, or the other of you are welcome to do it, but somebody needs to dig into that stuff and uh, do something with it. Um, Goldwitzer, when he talked about the need for the church to engage politically and he talked about the problems that privilege brings to society and the way that the church needs to set itself against simply maintaining privilege and the status quo. When he did that, he would sa- he would get to the end of kind of his exposition and say something like and that means socialist world revolution. Hmm. Like that's a quote. Like he uses that phrase. Socialist world revolution. So he's Makes definitely good stuff. Yeah. He's definitely got this stuff in the back of his mind, and he thinks that the whole capitalist imperialist order ultimately needs to be done away with. Now, that said, um, he's also close to Niebuhr in some interesting ways, in that hmm. he he has a certain kind of realism when it comes to tactics. So if we want to make a distinction between strategy and tactics, for Golvitzer, the strategy or the goal or the aim should be revolution, socialist world revolution, the overthrow of capitalist imperialism. Um, Tactically speaking, in terms of how you actually carry that out, maybe in certain places under certain conditions, that's going to involve an actual revolution, like revolution as tactic. Um, but at other times and places, it might be a series of gradual reforms that are ultimately going to uh, result in uh, overthrowing the imperial capitalist order. And in, in some ways, uh, Golvitzer leaves it up to the guardians of the status quo to determine which one it's going to be. Uh, he makes the point when it comes to revolutionary violence that uh, everything comes down to what the defenders of the status quo are prepared to do in terms of using violence. Uh, to defend their privilege, so uh, in kind of at least notionally democratic contexts like his own in West Germany, he was against uh, revolution as a tactic. But my sense is that in other contexts he uh, he could have supported it, and he was certainly open to it as a theoretical possibility so um, his 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 thinking is is fairly sophisticated and subtle on a number of these points. Now, one thing he would not countenance was terrorism. Uh, He did not believe in terrorism as a tactic at all. He thought that it dehumanized the people who do it too much. Hmm. um, And that in so doing, it betrays, too deeply the values of the sort of revolution that you're trying to bring about so he was dead set against terrorism uh, but uh, practically speaking he also kind of hung out with terrorists so there's this uh red faction rising in uh yeah. germany the bader uh gang uh when he would talk to them and meet with them and um when people criticized them he would say yes but look at state violence and things like that so um he was always prepared to side with the people who were uh, resisting yeah uh to the extent that he could uh in good conscience, even uh with some groups like that dang that is actually a surprisingly um marxist position to take
0: up that I didn't quite expect when we talked totally oh, that's cool um neat well um I guess moving the conversation on just a little bit uh something that a word that you've used several times and a word that shows up in, uh, in Galter's uh, writing himself is the word privilege.
3: Mm.
0: Um, and I think that's a pretty important vocabulary word to kind of unpack. Uh, I wonder, I mean, so, um, in the, the bit that I've been reading to write this blog post for theology corner, uh, he talks about sort of like the leveling of privilege or the redistribution of privilege. Um, and uh the question that i'm kind of wondering is if that is always economic privilege or if he had any thoughts specifically about things like white supremacy or imperialism i mean imperialism i guess we've kind of talked about it a little bit but um being in germany and uh i guess having uh the sort of uh the the wartime experience that he did uh, uh, does he have any uh specific thoughts on uh, uh racism or white supremacy
1: yeah um, I mean, some of that is in the background of his engagement with uh, in Jewish Christian dialogue, trying to overcome the unique racism of his own context. But for Golwitzer, privilege is a broad category, not a narrow, narrow one. But that said, um, he's also sort of in the Marxist vein where um, he would be tempted to say that unless you deal with the economic privilege, you're not ultimately going to be able to deal with any other kind um that it, it, at the end of the day it ultimately comes down to um to following the money hmm. um now he learned a great deal from James Cone he read James Cone he read other um north american african american literature uh like Invis- invisible man that novel have you guys read that i found uh, it's a really interesting novel but i found allusions to that in some of his writing hmm. um so he's he and he was at uh, and participated in Martin Luther King Jr's funeral. He happened to be in the states at the time. Hmm. And uh when it happened he went down and uh and was there for in part of that. So um he was engaged in these questions of race as a form of privilege and that would, you know, bleed over to analyses of white supremacy and things like that. And and he really I I mentioned the allusion to invisible man earlier. He talks about how Uh, black people are like the invisible man in the Western theological tradition. They're always there, but you never see them. And that this is a problem that the tradition really needs to grapple with. Uh, He has an essay. It's actually in English already. Uh, I believe it was in the Union Seminary Journal uh, called Black Theology. And it's just um, incredible for having been written in the 70s by a European slash white guy. Um, so I really recommend people look that up and check into it. But he was very much um, expansive in his analysis of privilege, even though in a certain sense for him, it always came back to a fundamental question of economics.
2: Um, that's super fascinating. I think especially useful, too, for uh, sorting through, I guess, how socialism is trying to construct itself in the U.S. right now uh, and trying to like sort through... Um, questions of intersecting injustices, uh, one thing that I think I've admired about theologians on the left is that by virtue of doing theology, uh, they often have a, a really interesting perspective on that because there's more, um, there are more conversations to be had than just class problems, um, for example, or just like state violence. Right. Um, and, that kind of critique of white supremacy that you sometimes get in uh, theology seems sort of leaps and bounds uh, ahead of, of certain socialist discourse. Not all of it, but uh, it's, a, it's a unique position. Um, kind of thinking about that, uh, if Galwitzer were alive today, uh, where do you think that he would sort of fit in the contemporary U.S. left uh, in, the, in this kairotic moment, right? There are all these kind of leftist groups coming around. What would it be like to be a, a sort of Galwitzer in the United States right now?
1: So, Goldwitzer, when talking about Bart and Bart's theology, describes life as a professor as involving a certain bourgeois undertow. And I have to confess, uh, you know, can, if, we, if we engage in confession of sin, as, you know, probably isn't a terrible idea to do from time to time. Huh? I have to confess that um, far too often I am can caught in that. Uh, academic, professorial, bourgeois undertow. So, the composition of socialism in North America, especially right now, is not something I know very well. And of course, I I, I basically know enough to say that there has never been a very coherent leftist movement <laughs> in the United States. But in terms of so- sorting out the different groups, I have very little wisdom or insight to share there. So I wonder what what do you guys think? You've read a little bit of Goldwitz, or you've heard me talk about him. Uh, maybe you know the the situation for the left in the U.S. better than I do. Where do you guys think he'd fit? It is hard to say. Well,
2: one thing that I think is actually kind of interesting about this question is that he doesn't fit very comfortably, uh, and maybe in a way that's somewhat useful. Uh, for example, in, in the Democratic Socialists of America, the DSA, they're not a political party in the same way that the Social Democrats in Germany are. And uh, despite some problems that are sort of historically inherent in that german party uh one thing that they have had to contend with and that Golwitzer seems to have really picked up on is that problem between reformism and revolution uh so that's kind of like a very important historical debate within that political party and it's one that uh, the dsa is sort of having trouble sorting out too despite the fact that they're not uh, you know a, f- a formal party uh, and that's kind of an interesting thing to think about you know Golwitzer sort of couldn't really be in a party in the U.S. right now that would cater to all those sympathies. Um, But, you know, maybe Golvitzer would be able to uh, uh, sort of help Christians see why, for example, they should be thinking about not just the DSA, but also talking with people like the Party for Socialism and Liberation, right, an important Marxist-Leninist party in the U.S., or um, kind of thinking through people who who do take on really significant direct action, uh, like property destruction and other sorts of... uh, Really complicated social responses in the U.S. Um, you know that's something that Christians are kind of afraid of doing. So, yeah, m- maybe it's actually kind of useful that he doesn't fit so so naturally into the contemporary U.S. left. Uh, but it's fun to sort of imagine um, what he might say about certain developments, certain uh, political apparatuses. Um, I don't know. What, what do you think, Matt? Any other things jump to your mind after? It's
0: just one of those uh, thinking it through. <laughs> yeah, maybe he's like uh, he's one of the soft lendness in the DSA. <laughs> yeah yeah that's right.
1: i do think there's a way in which he can be described as a soft leninist or like um <laughs> i think
0: that some of some of what you've said though does kind of seem like it, he's he could be kind of characterized or he could hang with folks in the psl at least uh, like his uh the sort of like uh disarmament kind of feel to him the anti-war feel to him um i think there's lots of overlap there i don't know you
1: mentioned the uh the spd in germany it's interesting um Bart joined the SPD in the early 30s just to kind of you know, cast his lot against the National Socialists. And when he did, Golvitzer caught him on the street and basically said, what are you doing? Those guys are so stuffy and bourgeois. Why are you hanging out with the SPD? (laughs) Um, So, I mean, the SPD, as you said, is an interesting history and and, uh, kind of um, go back and forth as to whether they're democratic socialists or social democrats is the way I would describe it. But Mm. um, I think, see, Golvitzer has that interesting distinction between aims and methods between strategy and tactics that he's definitely less left of the dsa in terms of uh what he wants Mm -hmm. um and the radicality of his vision but i could also see him if he was going to engage in actual um political operations. I could also see him on the left wing of the Democrats just for the, the reason that you might be able to get something done there uh, in the American political system. I mean, the German system's parliamentary, so you've got a vastly different dynamic right. involved. But I think what Golwitzer would probably do, I mean, he had a vision of the church as kind of a lobbyist group, as a pressure organization. And I honestly think that in the North American context, he would probably spend most of his time uh, going from church to church and from leftist organization to leftist organization uh, speaking to whoever would listen to him about the true socialism of the kingdom of God and what that calls, uh, calls us to support and to renounce in, in our own day. And so um, I think in the North American system, he would be kind of that free radical um, that doesn't land any particular place, but is out there making noise and trying to push the conversation to one side. So we should expect you at the next uh, at the next DSA meeting. Uh, I have a, there's a friend who's a professor here, um, ex-military, and he's a, he's a hilarious guy. And he tells this joke. Um, it was, it was more current a few years ago, but, you know, every now and then, cause you know, our demographics here in Missouri, we get a fairly conservative student, we're a fairly conservative campus and students will make some comment or used to make comments about Obama being socialist. And so my friend would say, uh, he's not socialist. Do you want to know how I know? And the students would go, yeah, how do you know? And he'd say, cause he's never at any of the meetings. <laughs> 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 It's true. And so the students would have to spend some time figuring that one out, but... Hasn't paid his dues (laughs) in years. (laughs) (laughs) That's right.
0: (laughs) Uh, Cool.
2: Um, I'm going to toss it to you, Matt, for the next uh, question.
0: Yeah. Uh, Sure. So the... um... The part of uh, your book that I've been focusing on most for the Theology Corner piece, again, is the appendix uh, that mm. is called Why Am I, as a Christian, a Socialist? And then it's like a list of theses. Uh, yep. It's a pretty cool piece, uh, sort of written in the 80s, so it's like a little bit dated, but uh, I mean, I think it still speaks to the contemporary situation quite well. Um,
1: if I ever get my act together, I'm going to rewrite it and update it yeah, for the I present think...
0: day. I think that you should. That was actually my idea. So um, go you can, for it. You can take my notes from the blog. No, just <laughs> Um Anyways, uh, it's a it's a really cool piece because he, he doesn't really use like typical like sort of Marxist or socialist language. Yeah. Um, he just uses a pretty solely theological language to talk about the reasons why he, a Christian, uh, would also be a socialist. Um, so can you talk a little bit about why he thinks socialism and Christianity fit together so well?
1: That's hard to do because it's so obvious.
0: <laughs> um, I mean, that's what he thinks
1: for sure, yeah. I mean, somewhere in the Bible, and this is, this is how Goldwitzer does it, it's not just me being a smartass, but somewhere in the Bible, I distinctly remember reading something about loving your neighbor. And for Goldwitzer, that's, uh, where, where is that? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds familiar, but I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> For Goldwitzer, that's ultimately what it comes down to. And and he says that Christians have political responsibilities precisely because Jesus told them to love their neighbors. And Goldwitzer says, uh, this love has to include, and this is a quote from him, love in structures. Hmm. And that means uh, policy and, and the rules that you put in place to set up your society, the laws that you pass, the way that you handle distribution of resources, all of that needs to be governed by love of neighbor. And so for Golvitzer, it's really that simple. And if you look at the different economic options on the table, Golvitzer says, one of the options on the table tells you that some people are better than others. And one of the options on the table tells you that everybody is equal, and that one sounds a lot more to him like loving your neighbor. And so, I mean, you can you can dress everything up in different theories and Marxist analyses and all all kinds of different things. But for Golvitzer, at the end of the day, it's just that simple. It's about loving your neighbor and love and structures. And in that sense, it's very similar to um, what Terry Eagleton says in his book. Uh, what is it? Faith, Reason, and Revolution, I think mm. it is. Uh, that that—that book, he says that um, socialism is political love. That's his phrase, political love. And Golvitzer believes pretty much the same thing, that if you're going to translate uh, the command to love your neighbor into economics, it's going to look a lot like socialism. And so why should uh, should Christians be socialists? Because you've You've encountered the privilege that's built into the current situation. You've come to realize that the way the society is set up and the economy is set up privileges some people above others. And and he uses the traditional distributive ethical dictum, um, and now I'm going to blank on the Latin phrase, but it's basically to each his own. Mm-hmm. And he says that under the capitalist system, that basic tenant of distributive justice is not followed because uh the laborers are not getting as much as they deserve and the owners of the means of producing wealth are getting way more than they deserve and so if we're going to be consistent and practice justice in terms of this basic tenant of distributive justice then we have to find a different system
0: i like that so much uh the idea of love and structures because um well, I don't know. I, I'm i in a pretty similar context to you, um, a small conservative campus. Um, and we're also a religious campus. So there's a lot going on there to add to it. But I think that's probably one of the biggest um, the biggest questions that students often ask me about socialism or um, in Christianity in the sense that like, um, well, uh, Christians should just like I mean, the church should just do like what the church does and kind of ignore the rest of politics or like, you know, um, uh, instead of instead of providing like uh, universal health care, the church should somehow like uh, you know provide um, funds for people to receive health care in some other way uh, through like sort of the unstructured routes of Christianity. And it seems like such a such a bizarre thing to actually think, but uh, I hear it quite a bit. Um, but anyways, the idea of instead loving through structures is helpful because like um, I don't know, I don't necessarily trust uh, any Christian organization to give everyone health care. Um, so maybe like the best way to provide love is uh, setting up, you know, uh, uh,
1: an adequate uh, legal system and an adequate uh, healthcare system. And it's not even about whether or not you trust them to do X or Y or Z. The the amount of resources necessary is so um, great that any kind of voluntar- voluntarist approach at addressing the issue is just going to be quantitatively overwhelmed. It's just the, the calculus doesn't yeah, work sure. out. So there's really only one option, and that option is to use um, political structures to do what voluntary organizations cannot do. And this is really at the I mean, I was teasing you guys about anarcho-communism earlier, but this is at the end of the day why I have a hard time being a anarchist. It's, I think that, and I'm stuck at least for now, in the traditional magisterial reformation mode that says the state isn't entirely a bad thing. Now, are there versions of the state that are almost entirely bad things? Sure. But the state as such can be necessary because otherwise you're just in a in a warlord kind of situation. And And really, it's all about those structures that we put in place as a community and the values that motivate those structures. And that's the only way of addressing some of these um in these problems of incredible scale
2: well maybe that's a good way to kind of transition to our new on-brand stock question that we close each interview (laughs) with uh which is uh what is something that you think christians should know about leftists and what's something you think leftists should know about christians and one way to kind of also recontextualize this is to draw on something that Galvitzer says in the uh, appendix we were just talking about um he says that uh Christian freedom means to examine everything, keep hold of what is good, uh, literally beautiful. Um, And he's saying that with respect to Marxism. Mm -hmm. So what should Christians keep hold of in Marxism? (laughs) And what should Marxists maybe, uh, I guess, try to get a hold
1: of in Christianity? Well, I'm going to come back to your stock question because I want to say something in response to that that's different from the Marxism issue. Um, (laughs) All right. But on the question of Marxism, Goldwitzer thinks that we need to recognize different brands of Marxism in the sense that for him there's what he calls dogmatic Marxism or what I would call ideological Marxism and there's what he calls Marxist analysis uh, analyzing society in a Marxist mode now dogmatic Marxism or ideological Marxism is what you get when Marxism turns into a theory of everything to use a more a more common phrase where you and, and really, I have a hard time thinking that Marx would be happy about this because he so famously said that philosophy should change the world, not describe it. But what you get with ideological Marxism is the attempt to describe the world through only Marxist categories. And um, eventually, Golwitzer says when you do this, you turn Marxism into a kind of pseudo-religion where you, you're you using it to construct meaning. And as such, it has the failings of any ideology. I mean, any ideology you put together is going to have a hard time uh, in some area. And for Goldwitzer specifically, ideological Marxism has the same failing of capitalism. It's kind of the mirror image in that. um, It's hard to maintain the dignity of the individual. I mean, capitalists like to think that they uphold individual dignity against um, communism or what have you, but really the capitalist system doesn't doesn't, (laughs) doesn't care at all about the individual. Any particular individual in the capitalist system is interchangeable with any other individual. So um, both capitalism and Marxism, when they become ideologies, have these deep problems with reference to basic human dignity, Goldwitzer says. Marxist analysis is an entirely different thing. Marxist analysis is basically when you look at society and you say, kind of like Glenn Beck used to, uh, follow the money. And you look at society and you look at what the structures are like. You look at who's benefiting from the structures and how those structures are maintaining the privilege of the people who are benefiting. And so Goldwitzer says Christians need to use Marxist analysis, need to learn from these modes of looking at society and understanding how it's working, uh, even while not falling into the um, dead end of Marxist ideology. So that's That's kind of what's going on with him there. So what do you keep? What's beautiful about Marxism? It's this illuminating way of looking at society and understanding how it works. Now, uh, to your stock question about what you wish uh, leftists knew about Christians and what you wish Christians knew about uh, leftists. Um, What do I wish leftists knew about Christians? Well, the first thing, the thing that I think leftists need to realize is that there are some Christians who agree that all of their criticisms of Christianity are true. Uh, Golwitzer makes this point uh, in Marxist and Christian dialogue that all of the complaints about Marxist criticism of religion are what he calls, quote, a catalog of actual Christian degenerations. So there, all these criticisms that you get from the left against Christianity and the church, there are Christians who entirely agree with those criticisms and say, yes, these are problems. <laughs> Instead of the typical or maybe typical defensive kind of stance that quote unquote Christians like to take. So I want leftists to know that some Christians agree with all of those criticisms. What do I wish Christians knew about leftists? Um, this one's maybe even a little more punchy. Um, even without knowing it, the leftists might well be better Christians than you. <laughs> That's what I would say to the Christians about leftists. The leftists might be better Christians than you, even though they don't know that they are. Mm-hmm. Um, Golwitzer. one of the ways that Goldwitzer's socialist convictions influence his theology is that, like dialectical theology in general, he believes that the church is an event, but for Golwitzer, the church is a political event. You only have the church in that moment when one encounters the liberating God of life and love uh, that casts down privilege and lifts up the oppressed. Um, and you, it's only in that event, that kind of political event, that the church exists. And so on Golwitzer's ground, you can say something like, Um, At that Black Lives Matter protest or at that Occupy Wall Street protest, you have an event of the church. And on that Sunday morning where you've got everybody singing about Jesus and talking about God, you don't have the church at all. And so the thing that I would want to say to Christians about leftists is even if the leftists don't know it, they might well be better Christians than you. Nice.
2: Dig that. Yeah. That is good. Uh, A good a good thing to preach at occupy wall street when it happens again (laughs) (laughs) um well uh thanks so much for spending some time with us travis Um, i really hope that uh the book can get some traction and that people can find a way into it uh i mean matt and i have been just kind of googling around and, and chatting and you know reading bits of your your writing and uh yeah it's it's nice to have you know one more uh one more resource in the pocket to keep thinking through how Christians and socialists can sort of figure out all this stuff together. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you liked what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can also find us all over the internet. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We've got a Facebook group uh called the Magnificast basement where you can post all your your good good links and chat with other folks uh some other points of order itunes reviews haven't had a good one of those in a while and we need them to stay on the charts to keep up uh, to keep usurping joel osteen that's what we're trying to do this year so uh if you haven't left a review go ahead and leave one if you have already leave five more why not who's stopping you not me that's for sure uh and um i hope that everyone's having a really good holy week uh we didn't get a chance to do anything about easter this week but fingers crossed we're gonna have a very cool episode on the easter rising next week so stay tuned for that and uh we'll see you all around um also our intro and uh transition music is by amoria Shea and our outro is by the illological spoon uh great okay
3: see you next week Keep your hoods up And you stay up late In Jackson You keep your hoods up Well, you keep your hoods up And you stay up late Oh, don't mind it cold night But we might mind If you leave too soon So come on now It's still early Least I would are you gonna do is we kissed in the alley by the Michigan Theater. Fall snow was glowing in the lights of the downtown. Saw a spark in your eyes. I just spoke it. Said we're gonna turn this whole place upside down.